you'd please open in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Mark. We are continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark, and today we find ourselves in Mark chapter 11, uh, verses 12 through 25, verse 12 uh, through 25. Please give attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired Word, beginning in Mark chapter 11, verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard it, and they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. So that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive your trespass. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May he write its truth upon our hearts this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would come now, that you would do a work through your word preached, as we learn from Romans 10. That it is the primary means that you cut to the hearts of your people. That you turn us from our sins to Christ, the ever-living Savior who intercedes for us. And we pray that here in this hour, as we sit under your word, both read and preached, that you would change us, that you would make us yours, and that you would bring to our hearts the knowledge that we have been adopted as sons and daughters in and through Christ Jesus and his shed blood for us. Might your spirit be near each and every one of your children's hearts this hour, we pray. For we ask it in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Over the last couple of weeks, we have seen Jesus Christ really as the great and final king. Mark has been depicting over the last couple of weeks, uh, Jesus as the great and final king. 
king. Uh, We saw at the end of chapter 10, we saw blind Bartimaeus crying out to Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And we saw there with those words, really, it comes the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, where God promised to David in what we call the Davidic covenant, that his offspring would bring in the everlasting kingdom to Israel. And we saw last week in the beginning parts, the first 11 verses in chapter 11, what we know is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, that he comes riding in on a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah 9, which was prophesying of that reigning king, that reigning Messiah coming to his people in the capital city of Jerusalem. So we have seen over the last couple of weeks, Mark really depict and show uh, Jesus as this great and final king. This week, however, the actions of Christ really serve to present him not so much as a king, but rather as the great and final prophet of God who is coming to his people. Throughout this section, Jesus does certain things that was common for Old Testament prophets to do. For example, his cursing of the fig tree uh, is an example of what we often call prophetic realism. Prophetic realism. Basically, what prophetic realism is, is where a prophet would, would practice some sort of symbolic act, some sort of symbolic gesture which would serve as a sort of symbolic word to the people that that prophet has been commissioned to go and speak to. Uh, We can think of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 20. God commands Isaiah to walk around barefoot and naked, essentially meant to be a symbolic word of Egypt and Cush, who will be led away captive by the king of Assyria, barefoot and naked. We can think of Jeremiah and Jeremiah 13. In Jeremiah 13, Jeremiah is commanded by God to take a loincloth and place it into the cleft of a rock at the Euphrates. And he's commanded then to go back a few days later and he finds the loincloth spoiled and good for nothing. A symbolic word of Judah and Jerusalem's pride, which too will be spoiled and which will be good for nothing. Nothing. So you have this common practice among the prophets, and we could go to numerous others, other examples of this, this prophetic realism among the prophets when, in the Old Testament, where they would act out some sort of symbolic gesture, some sort of symbolic word that God gives to these people, these prophets, uh, to give to the people of Israel. And that is really what we see here from Jesus. Uh, He acts out a symbolic word through this miracle with the fig tree that ends up being withered miraculously the next day. Really, he is being presented here through this prophetic, realistic, uh, uh, sort of uh, symbolic gesture as a prophet. We often refer to Jesus Christ as the great and final prophet, priest, and king. And as I've already mentioned, we saw Jesus these last couple of weeks as that great and final king. In a few weeks, we will see Jesus as that great and final prophet as he offers himself up as a sacrifice for sin. But this week, what we see Mark depicting Jesus as is the great and final prophet of God. 
his final word to his people. As the writer to Hebrews will say in the beginning of Hebrews, in former times and in many ways, God spoke to us through his prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. And so basically what I want us to do today is look at two words that come from this great and final prophet. Two words that come from this great and final prophet. First, the word of judgment, and then second, the word of promise. The word of judgment and the word of promise. Uh, Now, the word of judgment I want to break up into two aspects. First, the word of judgment upon the fig tree, uh, verse 12 through 14. And then second, a word of judgment upon the temple, verse 15 through 17. So first, the word of judgment on the fig tree, verse 12 through 14. Verse 12 through 14, Jesus is said to be hungry. And he sees this fig tree at a distance that seems to be ripe. Mark will make that indication when he says that, it's, it, that, it is, that it is in leaf. It's leafy. It has all the appearance of being ripe, ripe. But when Jesus comes close to this leaf, to this fig tree, he comes to find that, in fact, there is no fruit on this fig tree. Verse 13, Mark makes it clear uh, that it was not the time for this particular tree to be in bloom. I think telling us that something else is going on here other than Jesus just simply being hungry. Certainly Jesus would be aware of the fact that the fig tree was not in bloom during this period, during this season. Recall this is the Passover week. This is where the Passover festival would be celebrated and Passover took place in early spring. And it was common for fig trees to show some signs of life, to to come in leaf, as Mark puts it, in early spring, but they wouldn't actually harvest and be ready to be eaten until May or June. Verse 14, Jesus says, may no one eat fruit from you again. May no one eat fruit from you again. Clearly what is happening here with Jesus's words is a prophetic symbolic action taking place. And Mark makes a point to let us know that the disciples heard this statement from Jesus that will play a role in verse 22 later on in the passage when Peter will remember what it was that Jesus said and say to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the tree that you cursed has been withered. Uh, So we see that this is a prophetic symbolic Action And given what we see in the next section with the temple in verse 15 through 17, uh, the lesson of the fig tree really comes into focus. It really comes to be quite clear what this prophetic, symbolic action from Jesus is telling us and is telling the disciples. The fig tree, much like the temple in Jesus' day, from a distance, has all the signs of being fruitful from a distance, has all the signs of being spiritually robust. But when you come near the temple, you see that, in fact, it is fruitless. And as we will see, it is spiritually barren. Recall last week, the way we ended the triumphal entry passage in verse 11, how does that passage end? Jesus goes into the temple and he looks around at the temple. He essentially scopes out 
its condition. He comes near the temple. So just with the fig tree, as it looks ripe from a distance, when he comes near, it is fruitless. And so also Jesus, from a distance, Herod's temple was grand and quite the spectacle, having the show of of godliness to it. But Jesus, when he comes into the temple and scopes out its condition, it is fruitless. How often do we see grand cathedrals? How often do we see great big churches that have all the signs of spiritual vitality, of fruitfulness, that you come within its doors and you hear its teaching? It does not exalt the name of Jesus Christ. It does not seek to make the congregants more and more conformed into his image. But what you come to see when you get closer is that it is actually spiritually barren. It is fruitless. And so Jesus, he comes near the temple and all that grand spectacle that the temple seemed to suggest, the blessing of God was in fact an illusion. It was spiritually barren, which leads us to the second form of judgment that we see here in verse 15 through 17, judgment on the temple. Verse 15, Jesus enters the temple And drives out those who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, this was a common practice to have this sort of marketplace at the time of the great Passover feast. But it would often take place outside the temple precincts on what was called the Mount of Olives. And most scholarly resources seem to suggest there were four different locations that you could go to on the Mount of Olives. You would have money changers, and money changers were essentially there to exchange the proper currency that was necessary in order to pay the uh, half-shekel tax that was to be paid yearly. So you would have pilgrims come for the Passover feast. They'd need to to uh, pay that annual half-shekel tax. They didn't have the proper currency to do so, so they would go to the money changer and get the proper currency in order to pay that annual half-shekel tax. Uh, We have the uh, suggestion of pigeons here. Uh, According to the Old Testament, especially the book of Leviticus, uh, a pigeon could be used as a sacrifice by poor people for those who could not afford a lamb. And it was a very common practice, the sort of marketplace where you could exchange the proper currency for the half shekel tax and buy various animals to sacrifice. It was a common occurrence outside of the temple. But really, a, a recent development during the time of Jesus's coming uh, was the transition of this marketplace at the Mount of Olives inside the temple precincts itself at the court of the Gentiles. In fact, there are some studies that will suggest that uh, this took place two or three years prior to this event that we read of here in this passage. Uh, Many would even suggest that it is the high priest Caiaphas that implemented this marketplace mentality in the court of the Gentiles within the temple Precinct. So no wonder Caiaphas, the one who will charge Jesus with blasphemy, would be so angry with Jesus. He is here essentially condemning the very practice that he himself implemented 
within the temple with the exchange of this currency and the buying of these sacrifices within the court of the Gentiles. In any case, whenever this took place, it is clear that it was a very recent development. And so what you have here is the holy temple of God that was to be revered and treated as a place of prayer and worship has essentially become a marketplace. It has become a place where priests, especially in the leaders of Israel, would make a good prophet. And here Christ displays zeal for the house of the Lord. And he comes in the spirit of both Isaiah and Jeremiah. He quotes first from Isaiah 56, 7 directly, my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. And then he paraphrases Jeremiah 7, verse 11, but you have made my house a den of of robbers. So he's coming in the spirit of both Isaiah and Jeremiah, Old Testament prophets. And then in verse 18, you get the response of the chief priests and the scribes seeking to find a way to destroy him. I think ultimately indicating to us that what is going on here is Jesus is bringing judgment upon the leaders of Israel. The common people, Israel, is really amazed at what it is Jesus is doing here, showing his authority. But this verse 18 that Mark gives us, the chief scribes and priests being angered by Jesus' demonstration of zeal for the house, is actually showing us that what Jesus is doing is really calling to account the leaders within Israel. After all, it is the leaders of Israel that are making the profit from this marketplace. It would be the priests that would would make the profit from this marketplace within the court of the Gentiles. And so what Jesus is doing here is he is condemning the leaders of Israel for keeping the Gentiles from holy worship and holy prayer. Now, I think it is worth noting that this takes place in the court of the Gentiles. It is why Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, 7, that speaks of the temple being a house of prayer for all the nations. A house of prayer for all the nations. I think it's something we often neglect to consider when we consider Israel of the Old Testament that Israel was always commanded to be a light to all the nations, not just to Israel itself. In fact, their chief patriarch, the very father of the Jewish people with the very establishment of Israel, is told all the way back in Genesis 17 that he is not only to be the father of Israel, but Genesis 17 verse 4, that he is to be the father of a multitude of of nations. So here the chief patriarch, the father of the Jewish people, promised in the Abrahamic covenant all the way back in Genesis 17 that through him they are to be a light to the nations. God is to be a God to a multitude of nations. And this was something that the Israelite people were to bear upon their hearts. They were to hold on to this promise. As Exodus 19 will say, God tells Israel in that initial Mosaic covenant that they are to be a kingdom of priests to all the nations, a light to the nations. But here, what does Jesus find? 
He finds that Israel and her leaders have failed miserably in their responsibility toward the nations, making the court of the Gentiles a marketplace, a means to a financial end. They are obstructing true and proper worship among the nations, putting a stumbling block in their way. Isaiah 52, 5, the name of God is being blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now in verse 20, the next day, the disciples see the fig tree withered away at its root. And Peter says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered away. Now I think it is no accident here that Mark is purposefully sandwiching in between the curse of the fig tree And the fulfillment of that curse, he's sandwiching in between those two, this cleansing of the temple, showing us that there is a connection between the two, between the fig tree and the temple. Clearly here, the fig tree serves as a prophetic symbol of the temple and Israel and her leaders as a whole. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, you often see the fig tree used as a metaphor for Israel. Jesus has essentially, in this passage, brought a curse upon the false worship and leadership that was represented by the temple in Jerusalem, that was represented by the temple in Israel. And really here, what Christ serves as is God's mouthpiece, God's prophet, who is coming to bring his word of judgment, his final word of judgment. No more pleas, no more long-suffering on the part of God, sending prophet after prophet, as we read in Jeremiah 7, pleading for Israel and the leaders in the temple to turn to God and to serve him. Though those days are over, here is God's final prophet and the final word that comes through this prophet to Israel and to her leaders is a word of judgment. I think ultimately serving to show us and teach us that just like with Israel 2,000 years ago, there will be a day when God's long suffering will run out or the time of repentance will run out, where there will be no more pleas and callings for us to turn from our sins and live to God, but we are to take advantage of this time now and to set our house in order. Second Peter 3 says, the Lord is not slow about his promises as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to repent. This time as we await Christ's second coming and the delay of that second coming is actually an extension of God's grace and mercy toward us, who Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6 are the temple of the living Lord because the Holy Spirit dwells in this house. 1 Corinthians 3, he will talk about the church as a whole, the body being the temple of God where God's spirit dwells. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, he will talk about our personal bodies being the temple of the living Lord where God's Holy Spirit dwells. So that now in this time as we wait Christ's second coming, 
as that delayed moment of Christ's final judgment is upon us, we are to take advantage and care for the house here as a body and as a church, and we are to care for our own personal house, our own personal lives, and get our house in order and be prepared for Christ when he comes again, when it will be too late. So there is a lesson here with Israel and with this temple that we are to take advantage of God's slowness, of God's long-suffering, of God's patience with us, and keep and live in keeping with repentance and get our house in order and be prepared for when Messiah comes again on the clouds of heaven. So first, we see the word of judgment. Christ is that great and final prophet who comes to Israel and to that religious center that was centered in the temple and gives a final word of judgment. Second and finally, we get the word of promise. In verse 22, after Peter tells Jesus that the fig tree he cursed has withered, uh, Jesus will say, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and be thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now, I think we need to understand this phrase and what Jesus says here within the context of the passage itself. What mountain is it that Jesus and the disciples are currently looking at? When Jesus says these words, they are looking at the temple mount. They are looking at the mountain that the temple stood on. And Jesus is saying, throw this mountain out and it will be thrown into the sea. He is referring to a specific mountain. He is referring to the mountain that the temple stood upon where the old order was established and where its religious center and focus was. Jesus here is essentially saying to these disciples who will be the new leaders of God's people and in and through their witness to Jesus Christ, the old fruitless order will pass away and give way to a new order founded on the apostles and Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone and the power of that new order, that power that these disciples will be invested with will be through faith and will be through faith alone. This new order that will be established will not squander the promises of God as the old order did. This new order will take the promises of God and bear fruit in their lives through power of God working through faith. faith. And we see in verse 24 that this power will be invested to them through faith working in and through prayer. Working in and through prayer. Verse 24, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Believe that you have received it already, past tense, and it will be yours. I really want to close here and see and pause and see how Jesus really gives us an indication of what Christian prayer ought to look like. Jesus is essentially saying that we are to pray 
in accordance with the promises of God found in his word. In other words, we are to pray for the things that God has already proclaimed to be ours in his word and in his final word, Jesus Christ. Our longings and our desires in our prayers are to be oriented by and shaped by what is fully ours in Jesus Christ. Lord, make me holy. For you have already sanctified me and set me apart in the blood of Christ. Lord, make me righteous because you have already declared me to be righteous in the blood of Christ. Lord, give me joy because you have already poured out joy in its fullness in the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Bring to bear what you have already declared to be mine in Christ. That is Christian prayer. Our longings and the way we pray is to be oriented and shaped by God's final word to us and the blessings that he pours out in and through Christ. In other words, the things we long for, the things that we will receive are the things that we have already received in Christ. We haven't received cars. We haven't received mansions. We haven't received loads and loads of money. We've received holiness. We've received righteousness. We received joy and peace and contentment that is found in the blood of Christ that has satisfied the love and the wrath of God. And so we are to pray and ask for those things that are ours in Christ. In other words, we are to ask for God to bear into our lives existentially on an experiential level the things that he already declares to be ours in its fullness in Christ as we are conformed more and more into the image of his Son. That is Christian prayer. And that is the beauty of Christian prayer. It is faith looking backward and seeing that we are united to Christ fully and completely and in him we have all that we need. And God promises to make us more and more like Christ and we are to pray for just that. There really is a lesson here on Christian prayer. It is to be shaped by God's word. And what verse 25 teaches us is that the prayer of faith is evidenced in the way we treat others. Notice what Jesus says in verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you. In other words, prayer is to be done within the context of dividing walls being shattered. Think of the context of this passage. Jesus comes into the temple, into the court of the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are being treated nothing more than a commodity, a means to a financial end. But just as Christ's blood has torn into that veil, that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies for the disciples where God was seated, so also that same blood has broken down the wall that separated Jew and Gentile. 
And so our prayers are to be consistent with that already declared to be truth in the gospel. That we have not only been reconciled with God through the blood of Christ, but we have been reconciled with one another. To pray for peace, forgiveness, for mercy and kindness, and yet not extend that mercy and kindness to our brothers and sisters and to our neighbors is not the prayer of belief. It is the prayer of unbelief. And it shows ignorance in the promises that God delivers to us in Christ. In other words, the prayer of faith is to be a prayer that is done in the context of peace among the people of God who God has shed his blood for. Because God's final word to us in and through his son is that everyone, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and master, have fallen short of the glory of God. And each and every one of us deserves our just condemnation. And God now pours out his forgiveness on all people throughout all nations in the blood of his son. So that now there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor servant, but all are one in Christ Jesus. So the prayer of faith is to be a prayer in the context within a body and with our neighbors that puts and demonstrates what God declares to be true in his son, that we are not only reconciled to God through Christ's blood, but we are reconciled to each other. And within that arena, within that context, we lift up our prayers to God. Let's pray. Father, we do pray and we do thank you that you have reconciled us not only to yourself, but you have reconciled us with each other in and through the blood of Jesus Christ, that you have made us a living body that is united to Christ as our head, and that in and through him we are unified in spirit and in truth, and that we are to pray within a context of peace among the brethren. And so I pray, Father, that you would bring peace to this congregation, that we would be at peace with one another, that you would hear our prayers, that we would not come as hypocrites claiming the forgiveness of Christ for ourselves, but unwilling to forgive others in our lives, in our day-to-day lives. And we thank you, O God, that Jesus Christ is that great and final word. And his word to us is a word of promise that, that all the power of God unto salvation is found in him. And that storehouse of power is given to us by your spirit when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the promises that come to us in and through that great and final prophet, priest, and king. Bless us now, we pray, as we close off this hour of worship. Might our singing be pleasing to your ears, and might you be magnified and glorified through it. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for our closing hymn, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds. How sweet the name of Jesus.